Welcome back to another episode of Closing the Loop. My guest today is Bernard Para, founder and CEO of Bitnob, a Nigerian Bitcoin exchange and financial services platform. I met and had the chance to hang out with Bernard recently at the Oslo Freedom Forum in Norway. I really enjoyed hearing his perspective on Bitcoin, the awesome work he's been doing with Bitnob, and the many interesting stories he had to share about the unique challenges and opportunities of being a Bitcoin entrepreneur in Nigeria right now. I found his passion, purpose, and dedication to be extremely impressive, so I invited him on to continue our discussion, help me gain a better understanding about what is happening in that part of the world, and delve more into his fascinating and inspiring story. Enjoy. There we go. We're live. Bernard, how you doing, brother? It's good to see you. Good, man. It's been a couple of weeks and good to see you again. It was uh, really cool to meet and connect with you uh, in Norway. It was such an interesting and special experience uh, for many reasons. But um, yeah, how did, how did you think of everything? Actually, sorry, I should, getting ahead of ourselves. Before, before we break into that, for people that aren't familiar with you, why don't you give a brief yeah. intro, introduction to you and what you do, and then we can chit-chat about Norway. You, you, you. Um, so my name is Bernard Para. Um, a Nigerian entrepreneur, CEO, and co-founder of a Bitcoin um, platform called Bitnob. So we do dollar cost averaging, Bitcoin lending, and um, APIs, you know, on Lightning for emittances as well. So we operate in mostly Nigeria and Ghana right now. And, you know, it's been, it's been exciting. So I'm a total Bitcoiner. There's no question about that. And, you know, I love what I do. You know, it, it was awesome when we were speaking around the dinner table in, uh, in Norway, you know, because yeah. so many people come into this space and a lot of people mean well, but they end up being taken by like the crypto web three narrative and they get involved in all sorts of nonsense as a result. And you never know when you're meeting someone else in the quote unquote industry, if they're going to be like a hardcore Bitcoiner and they get what's really going on here, or if they're going to be like a yeah, like I'm totally into crypto and the whole landscape and that kind of thing. And it yeah. was, I, I loved it. Like when we first were sitting around the dinner table, I think, and it became obvious that, you know, you were a Bitcoin only sort of person. I was like, all right, sweet. We're going to get along really well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's always a good feeling when you meet a Bitcoin only person anywhere in the world. So it's always Yeah, exa exactly. You know, it's, it's cool. I was looking into um, your company a bit and some of the writing and interviews you've done. Yeah. And, you know, like a lot of the, um, the platforms that are basically Bitcoin accumulation and, and savings platforms, you know, they, they, they have like monikers for their users, right? Like in, in the US, I think Swan calls their users like Swans or Swan Force or something like that. And I thought yours was really apt because yours is nobles, right? You call yeah. like your, your users and your stackers Bitcoin nobles, which is such a seems like mm -hmm. such an apt moniker for someone who's, you know, stacking sats as much as they can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, Bitnob is just, uh, it's just sort of a combination of Bitcoin and nobility, right? So it's like, Hey, Bitcoin has noble causes and it just came from, you know, uh, back in the day, uh, in the early days, it's like, it's just criminals who use Bitcoin, right? So, you know, does Bitcoin have any use cases outside of, you know, the dark web and whatever, you know, so it's like, Oh, okay. Bitcoin actually has noble use cases because I used to do remittances for people back then from, you know, Ghana to Nigeria using Bitcoin. So it's like, you know, this thing actually has, you know, useful use cases and the people who stack on Bitnob, you know, are noble people because they're not playing the short term <laughs> game. You know, it's like 
<laughs> so that's sort of that's sort of that's and and, and I think it, it fits it fits love it it fits very well it fits very yeah. well I mean we talk about all the time like what kind of values are represented in Bitcoin and I it seems to be the case that values like truthfulness and freedom at least characterize the protocol itself and what it delivers to people it delivers to people an option to opt out of the oppression that they're under yeah. and then I think what it fosters in terms of like behavioral change and the, and the culture that's emerging around it is one of honesty and compassion and truth and, you know, very noble, um, characteristics or behaviors. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I I think it's perfect. So, Mm -hmm. you know, let's dig into the the background story. You know, how did this all get started for you? Just like why, why Bitcoin? I've heard, I've heard bits and pieces, but why don't you you take me to the beginning? (laughs) Yeah, so um, it, it started in 2013, um, you know, Ross Ulbricht, so, you know, Silk Market, the news, you know, I saw the news and got curious, you know, what is this? Um, turns out that, you know, there were already a few people in my school who were into it already. And, you know, it's like, hey, this is how you get Bitcoin. This is, and then back in the day, the way we got Bitcoin in Accra was, you know, we go to this um, cyber cafe and uh, we write down sort of our names and our Bitcoin addresses in a logbook and pay for the Bitcoin, wait a couple of days or 24 hours, you come back, you sort of verify that this is your address and you know they send your Bitcoin to you, right? Um, so in the early days, it was mostly just flipping. You know, I just thought this was some sort of internet money I could just make some extra cash into uh, with. But on this flip side as well, it's... This is something that no one could control. I think that was that was the most interesting thing when I read the Silk Road story. Like, is this really true uh, that no one could control this? Uh, I mean, I believed at that point. I didn't do any extra research. You know, just like, okay, okay, they said they can control it. And like, okay, okay, let's go. Let's get, I can make some money off it. Um, I continued with that for a while um, until, um, you know, sometime in 2016, uh, we couldn't really get any money uh, from our Nigerian, um, using our Nigerian debit cards abroad. So the central bank basically said, you know, uh, we don't have money to settle our international obligations. So if you're making any withdrawals with your card, you know, <laughs> with your NERA card, we can't, so we're not supporting that. Uh, turns out that, you know, had my school fees and other, you know, uh, monies I needed for things in my Nigerian bank account. So I, I was stuck in Accra, Ghana. Um, I mean, to cut the long story short, Bitcoin was sort of the way out, right? So make a bank transfer to someone in Nigeria, they get Bitcoin, send it over to you in Accra, you liquidate it back into the Ghana cities and then you have your money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was, that was sort of like the first, that was like the light bulb moment for me when it comes to the use cases of bit- Bitcoin, right? Um, I started thinking of, about it from an entirely different way that time. And that was when I dug deeper. Now, it's ironic that I found this in 2013. I had never bothered to read the white paper. <laughs> so I went back, um, started reading the white paper, started reading whatever I could on Bitcoin, you know, found Bitcoin talk, you know, just reading. And you, you know how it happens when you go down, start going down the rabbit hole. It's the only thing you want to do. Um, <laughs> and because um, I was still in school then, so I was studying um, software engineering, but I was already doing a lot of, a lot of coding, already building a, a lot of stuff. And I felt, you know, this, there's something in here. 
you know, fast forward to 2017, um, you know, I looked at it and I'm, I'm like, Hey, you know what? So now this is what happened in the early days. I was doing just Bitcoin, right? 2017, 2018, 2017, late 20, early 2018. That was my shitcoin moment. Right. So I was like, Hey, you know what? Um, so I quit my full-time job sometime in, um, June or so of 2017 to say that I'm a technical guy. I think I understand this into an extent. I've been playing with solidity for a while. So, uh, I'm just going to dive into this. I know there will be a demand for this talent in the next five years. So I just want to position myself to be in a place where I could get hired. I wasn't going out to start a company. I could get hired to do this. Um, so I, I quit my job then, you know, picked up more solidity, you know, just, you know, you know what happens during the, that period? You feel like you can blockchain everything, right? Everything that's not on yeah. the blockchain, <laughs> it's nothing. So, <laughs> so I had those wild moments because, I mean, I wanted to build an upwork on the blockchain, you know, I wanted to put certificates on the blockchain, I wanted to put medical records on the blockchain, you know, anything and everything they told us we could build on Ethereum, I wanted to do it. Um, you know, I spent some time, uh, and then I, 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 I already knew how to do some sort of, um, chatting, you know, reading charts, trading from my Forex days. And, you know, I just, I, I did some, I did a lot of shit coining, right. One of the earliest guys on Binance from, you know, this part of the world. So it was, it was just, Hey, um, over time, over time, you know, because I dedicated myself to a lot of, you know, this, putting my craft into this. Um, I discovered, you know, when the ICOs were really the in thing, you know, started looking at the ridiculous ideas and asking myself questions like, is this ever going to happen? Like, are these guys for real? You know, and designing, trying to design some of those applications that I'm designing. It was a struggle to really explain what their advantage was over every day over the current world called the web two applications, right? Because, yeah. you know, I had studied cryptography in school. So when I looked at it, it's like, okay, a lot of these things can actually be, you know, it's just proof, right? There are many cryptographic ways to, you know, sort of prove something. You could just use cryptographic protocols to do that. You don't need a blockchain to do that. And I started asking myself, you know, started looking deeper. Um, and during that period as well, the messages that Bitcoiners were talking was sort of, different from, you know, the whole shitcoin and altcoin, right? It's all about pump, dump, you know, I had John McAfee doing his thing, you know, everyone was just pumping and dumping. And I asked myself, you know, if this is what I wanted to associate myself with, right? If this is what I wanted to have a reputation for over time. And I said, no, uh, it's, it's not it. I looked at Bitcoin. There was no one really controlling Bitcoin. No one was there to pump Bitcoin. Bitcoin was just on its own, you know, no one. To, and I, and I thought, no. Um, I've looked at this, I've tried to build a lot of applications on solidity, but I can't for the life of me actually point out the real advantages of it. And sidebar, you know, yesterday we had, <laughs> I don't know if you saw the interview, you know, the 16 Z guys, you know, struggling to explain, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's ridiculous. Right. Um, and I was, I was at that point, I was, I was there at a point in my life. Right. So I totally understand what, <laughs> how difficult it is to explain those things. Um, and then I focus, I decided that, you know what, I'm going to focus on just Bitcoin. 
and see what comes of it because this is this looks totally different. The values, as you mentioned earlier, are values that are aligned with, right? We want to see a greater good for the world. We're not just looking to enrich ourselves. We're looking to actually provide value. And that's the only way we want something back for ourselves. We don't just want to take away from people. We don't want to be the guys that just, you know, scammed people and we move from, I can't sleep with that. So, and, you know, looking at people in the Bitcoin community, this is more of a community that I want to align myself with. So I did, I, I did a lot of that. Um, you know, started learning more about Bitcoin development on its own. 2020 or so, 2019, they about did some stuff um, at Chaincode Labs. They had, you know, this online seminar I joined. Um, by then I was working on a startup uh, back in Nigeria and we had just finished working on the startup and I told my guys, say, hey guys, look. Um, so we tried some iterations of Bitnob in 2019, which are sort of a non-custodial wallet. Um but it didn't really fly that, you know, we, we think we thought a non-consider wallet was just going to fly just like that, but it didn't really fly. Um, so we decided to say, okay, you know what, um, guys, I think there's a real opportunity here. Um, everything inflation, you know, everything is just going to pieces over here in Nigeria, but I think we can actually come out and build something that is not an exchange, something that is value driven for people, something that doesn't, you know, it's not built on the basis of speculation. And I thought we had a very good team to do that. So I called my team together and said, oh, guys, you know, I looked at things like dollar cost averaging. That's something I wanted for myself. And the key was, you know, what would I want for myself as a Bitcoiner? What would I want for myself as a Nigerian? And said, okay, let's build a product. And that was sort of how we started the product sometime in 2020. And the rest is yep. history, as they say. Yeah. Yeah, I cut out last lot, month. But, yeah, it, 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 yeah, sure. And, and and we can we can get into that. But last month, you know, just to put a a bow on this initial kind of bit knob story, you are sponsoring the Nigerian Professional Soccer League. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. That's correct. So we're sort of um, at the elite level, like a major sponsor of the Nigerian um, Professional Soccer League. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. And wh so, why, why did you guys decide to do that? Okay. So, I mean, um, football is one of the things. Nigeria is a very, you know, big country, lots of different culture, cultures, um, different tribes, different religions, uh, you know, so many differences, right? But then uh, football is one of the things that brings everyone together. So the day we lose a football match, um, you know, the Christian, the Muslim, you know, everyone is, <laughs> is feeling sad that day. Right. So, uh, football is, football is cultural in Nigeria. Um, and it's one of the things that gets to the grassroots is the language that everyone, you know, understands in the country. Right. So it's a thing that the kid on the street is dreaming to be a footballer tomorrow, because that is one of the ways he feels like he can, you know, move out of poverty. Right. Everyone wants to go play you know, outside of the country, everyone wants to play football league and, and stuff. So, you know, we looked at it and, you know, what are some of the things that we have um, as ideals, right? So part of the things with Bitcoin as well is really looking at your back is against the wall, the wall, but you need something, you need some sort of hope, right? So, you know, they say Bitcoin is hope. Um, football is the same thing. Football is hope for a lot of people. How do we reach those people, right? Uh, by providing value. So that's what we, you know, football is sort of like the best thing to align ourselves with where we felt we could make, you know, the most impact. Uh, we thought it's something, it's something that we understand, right? I mean, 
I wanted to turn pro. I just didn't turn pro, right? So sort of understand how, you know, that passion that people have for football from the grassroots. Um, the other thing about football is, you know, you could stay in a, you could say in a sense that it's sticky. So if you've been following a football team, you know, maybe from when you're five, when you're six, even if it's a family thing, you know, no matter how it goes bad for that team, somehow you can't live, right? I mean, Arsenal fans, I testimony to that. It's been really bad for them, but they're still there. So football, it's like, it's personal to people. So um, it's a case where can we marry football and Bitcoin in the country, right? You know, if people, if people who identify with football identify with Bitcoin, from an early, you know, from the early days, then we believe that, you know, over time, it's really, you know, the values are aligned. The values are aligned. Football is about fairness. Football is about fair play. Football is about fun. Football is all about hope, you know, and Bitcoin embodies these things as well, right? So that's sort of, and in football as well, you need to work for it, right? It's all about labor, right? So there's proof of work in football as well. So it's like, you know, let's, this is one way we can help in, uh, you know, developing the country as well. Right. And so is this the main soccer league, the main football league in Nigeria that you're sponsoring? Yeah, that's the main football league in Nigeria. That's the, that's the number one football league in Nigeria. It's like the premier league, the English premier league for Nigeria. Yeah. Wow. Did it cost a lot to sponsor? (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) It did. It did. It did. It did. But I think, I think, um, it's, it's going to be good for Bitcoin adoption. So yeah, it's, it's going to be worth it at the end of the day. What, what is, cause I, you know, speaking with you in, in Norway, uh, and some of the others that were there shed a lot of light on, um, what's going on in Africa, West Africa in Bitcoin for me, because, you know, I, I just hadn't spent much time learning about it or focusing on it before, but what is the, the kind of status of Bitcoin in a market like Nigeria? And if you want to speak more broadly, like West Africa, then, then go ahead. But like, what is the sentiment? What is the interest? What is the acceptance adoption, all that stuff? Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, I will start from the top, right? So when it comes to, you know, the regulatory bodies, it's still sort of a gray area, right? So we're not, we're not stopping you from, you know, doing your stuff. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it's not legal. We don't have a legal framework for it. Um, even though in Nigeria, the Nigerian SEC, uh, recently, you know, released, uh, a framework guiding you know, crypto asset providers uh, in the country, which is a really great step, uh, in the right direction. Now, the other thing is, you know, the Nigerian SEC recently sort of um, released a guide guidelines for crypto, um, you know, service providers in the country, which we think is a really great step uh, in the right direction. Um, you know, as I, for the top, that, that's sort of what's just there, right? The central bank is not in favor, you know, and it's just sort of, uh, but, you know, when you start going to the streets, it's, um, it's different things to different people as well. So for the technically savvy person, um, you know, who communicates with people around the world, um, it's more of um, a remittance option. Uh, it's a payment option because uh, in Nigeria today, you have a limit of 20 US dollars on your debit card. So I don't know what I'm going to buy with $20 what do you, what do you a mean? month. So in, in a month... You can only spend can, 20 US dollars a month? Yes, online, for online payments. So... It's crazy, right? Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's that bad. And that was from $100 a month just a few uh, months ago. So $20 a month, I think, for the past three months now. So why, why? What's the purpose behind that limit? 
Yeah, so it's because, you know, the, the banks sort of don't have dollars to settle their international obligations to, you know, their partners. So um, there's sort of a shortage of U.S. dollars um, in the country, right? So that's why they're sort of, you know, bringing in these measures, uh, which is really terrible, right? So um, for the tech-savvy people, I mean, an example is, you know, just using Bitcoin uh, and going to, you know, pay with Moon to get a Visa card, right? An international Visa card that they can use. So they pay, uh, pay via Lightning or Bitcoin on chain, right? Um, for remittances as well, you know, it's just people really doing remittances, cash app, you know, bidding up, strike, bidding up, bottle pay in Europe, uh, bidding up, you know, using Bitcoin on chain or uh, Lightning. I think the other thing as well has been, you know, um, inflation. So inflation is around 17% and has been growing. Food inflation itself is around 23, 24%. So it's, it's been really terrible, right? And then when you compare it to someone who was, who has actually been keeping their money, uh, in either stable coins or Bitcoin over that period of time, right? Bitcoin has always outperformed the Nera. So, you know, people are more open to, you know, say just, just keeping some money in Bitcoin for uh, protecting themselves against inflation. Uh, and then of course there's, there's sort of, as you go down the pyramid as well, there are people who really just, you know, they just want to buy Bitcoin and just are just waiting for the day that it sort of goes through the roof. Right. So there's <laughs> sort of, it's kind of speculatory as well, but I mean, mm. when you think about it, it's, um, it's, it's like access, right? So, uh, back in the day, you know, we didn't have access to U.S. stocks. We didn't have access to all of these things as well. So all these, um, all of these growth, um, you know, sort of investment vehicles to put money into. And even when you had access to them, the barriers to entry are really high, right? So maybe you need a minimum of, of $100 or $50 to open a brokerage account, which, you know, is a lot of money for many people. But I mean, with Bitcoin, you could just start with, say, a dollar or even less. And, you know, for the person who doesn't have a lot, it's like, it's a small way to sort of give Bitcoin a try. I think the most, the other interesting part that is not really talked about um, very much in public is um, businesses sort of settling their international obligations uh, with Bitcoin, right? So uh, I'm a merchant in Nigeria and I want to sort of import things from China um, and I don't have dollars to pay for that because the bank won't even give me dollars to pay for that in the first place. And the time, and if they do, maybe I need $200,000, they probably have only $10,000 for me. So, you know, the best way is to work with an intermediary who takes Bitcoin and then settles, you know, with RMB or whatever with the Chinese Yuan over there in China for you. So, I mean, it's one of the big use cases, probably one of the use cases that drives the most volumes uh, when it comes to Bitcoin in Nigeria today. So that's sort of what it's like. But general sentiment, I think general sentiment, um, you know, for the young people, they're, they're sort of like very okay with it. Like they're more in favor of it. They're open to giving it a try and whatnot, like, you know, as, and they're really, there are a lot of people looking to learn more about it. You know, the average person will tell you that, you know, the only reason why they are not buying right now is probably because they want to, but they don't understand it enough to, to get started in the first place. Um, I've, you know, the people most skeptical are really, you know, people who feel like, okay, they're educated, Bitcoin doesn't make sense, but over time they always come around as well because inflation deals with them and you know, they start looking for ways uh, out as well. I think on a, on a general note, it's, um, it's positive. It's positive. The outlook is positive. 
um, you know, everything, the monetary policy and everything sort of pushing people towards, you know, alternative assets and currencies like Bitcoin. And I mean, it's very similar in most of um, West Africa as well. You know, Ghana is a similar thing over there in Ghana as well. Is there a lot of confusion around Bitcoin versus shitcoin in, in that market as well? Yeah, 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 there is, <clears throat> there is, there is, there is, there is. I mean, and that's because I think it's still more of an educational thing where, you know, um, and, and that, that's, that's why I don't like shit coins. That's why I've, I don't like them at all, because when something happens to a shit coin, people know Bitcoin the most and they just say it happened to Bitcoin, not even cryptos, right? right? So, <laughs> so, you know, looking at this Luna thing, people are afraid to touch Bitcoin because what if the same thing happens to Bitcoin, right? Because that's happened yeah. to Luna uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. So I think um, it's, it's, it's sort of people are really still not clear on the actual differences between the two. So there, there's a lot of work that needs to be done um, in that regard. What do people think of... 23% food inflation in the Naira and such like extreme capital controls, like only having 20, 20 US dollars to transact in per month. Like what, you know, because <clears throat> a part of the, part of the challenge in making the case for why Bitcoin exists and why it's important and why it's valuable in Western developed markets, you know, has been trying to make the case that there's something fundamentally wrong with the existing financial system. And, you know, and we, we've, many of us have been making that case for a long time, but for the average person, it's kind of hard to make because they say, Hey, I have a bank account. I can send money. I don't, there's no restrictions that I'm aware of on my capital. Sure. I, I have two, three, 4% inflation a year I have to contend with, but I have a stock portfolio that delivers eight to 10. So I offset that, you know, like it's happy mm -hmm. days and, yeah. and they don't really understand the, the fundamental problems with the system that they're you know, a part of, but in a, in a market like Nigeria's, it would seem that those problems, even though like, if we're talking about the system, the difference is only in degree, not in kind. It's basically the yeah. same system. It's just a matter of degree, but mm -hmm. it would seem that the problems are much more apparent. So how does the average person feel about the financial system and the restrictions and the controls, controls and all that? And how do they deal with it? If not through something like Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, so so when we when when we look at um, the demographics as well, so you know, a, a good example is people in the rural areas, right, who don't have access to bank accounts and and all of these, um, you know, even if they have access to bank accounts, they 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 are very much underserved, you know, with banking services, and for them, it's it still goes back to the past, which is you know, storing value in livestock grains, you know, and land and whatever, right? So, you know, someone gets a lot of money and they just go to buy a lot of grains, store it. And, you know, because food prices are going up, right? So they're able to sell it and sort of counter inflation in a way. So yeah. for them, that's sort of a big deal. Um, you know, if you go higher up the ladder, you know, for people who are sort of, um, you know, banked. I mean, to me, I, I sort of say every single Nigerian is underbanked, right? It's underbanked. Um, but to sort of those of us who feel like we're banked, the problem is, it's like we're saying it. So in the past few years alone, um, in the past seven years, we've printed more money, probably double 
of what of the whole money we've printed in our history. Right. Um, and that's just, so that bad. is bad. That is bad in itself. Right. What makes it worse is, you know, as I said earlier, these systems are not much different from one another. Now, the problem for us is because when it comes to these systems, we are lower down the food chain um, is the cantillon effect affect us. So for me, anytime the U.S. says they've printed money, I just know that, okay, this is going to affect us. Even if we don't print. This is going to be bad. <laughs> yeah, even if we don't print <laughs> one naira, it's, <laughs> it's going to be bad for us, right? So, you know, people are looking at this and, you know, they're looking at things like real estate, you know, for those who can afford to, to sort of pack some of their wealth into and hedge against it. Um, we're having more platforms who, you know, are able to provide, you know, access to U.S. stocks, for example. So people are looking at that as well. Um, the biggest way is probably dollar dollar savings as well. So uh, people are open to, you know, dollar savings and most recently stable coin savings because people are suddenly having a fear that even the dollar accounts that they have within the system could be seized someday. Or in fact, they're having a lot of restrictions, you know, different circulars coming as how people can use a lot of capital controls on even the dollar accounts that we have, right? So people are looking at stable coins and from what I've seen is a lot of people look at who were not comfortable touching Bitcoin and they started with stable coins and now open to touching Bitcoin as well once they've tasted stable coins. So it's like, okay, this crypto thing, um, I don't want the volatility of Bitcoin, but stable coins are stable. Okay, let me start with it. And they start looking into Bitcoin as well. So those are some of the things that people looked uh, are using outside of Bitcoin to um, hedge inflation in a way. Yeah, I mean, that's such a common refrain, you know, that people are afraid or in some cases, you know, can't handle the volatility of Bitcoin. If your savings are such that they need to be deployed, you know, within a time frame of weeks and months, then, you know, fair enough, because Bitcoin's volatility might put such a dent in your purchasing power that you, you can't pay for your rent or your food. But for a lot of other people, I think the, volatil the, the volatility unnecessarily scares them mm -hmm. off when if they looked at it with a, a more level head, they would realize that yeah. where is there a better place to park your wealth with, without any counterparty risk? I mean, even stable coins, right? I mean, sure. Hopefully Bitfinex has a bank account in the Seychelles <laughs> with $75 billion in it. That would like, but even if they did, even yeah. if they did, it's like, well, that bank account could be shut down, you know, by some government entity at some point, no problem. And maybe they got a lot of money to like grease the wheels and maybe the bank accounts are spread out over like a hundred different jurisdictions and yeah. hopefully they are. But again, we're, we're back in the old system where counterparty risk is ever present. And mm -hmm. if, if, if the landscape becomes extreme, then that counterparty risk becomes that much more precarious as we're finding out in recent weeks with these, you know, collapses in the, in the Bitcoin and the crypto, uh, yeah. not in the Bitcoin space, not but in, in, the, in the crypto industry. <laughs> yeah. I misspoke there, but yeah, in the crypto space for all these, mm -hmm. all these, um, counterparties, all these intermediaries, all these, uh, leveraged operations. And so I, I, I think it's still the case one by one, people are going to have that light bulb moment and realize that and realize, wow, there really is no better place to park my long-term savings than this asset. Yeah. But you know, it happens one by one and it takes time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it does. In, in a longer, in a long enough time frame, that's what people need to look at, you know, just, you know, zoom out. Once you're able to zoom out, you'd see that the volatility, it's actually, 
In fact, sometimes it's a good thing for you, uh, really. So get, sure. get I mean, out. man, if, <laughs> if you didn't understand what was going on a year ago, but now you do, I mean, it's a great time to get it, right? Because you're getting it at like, you know, 70% <laughs> off or whatever. Um, yeah. What's yeah. what you, you guys, um, Bitnob raised some capital, I think, uh, in December, maybe early this year, uh, I think a mm-hmm. seed round. What's been, you know, what's the growth been like for you guys? You're offering a, a very basic, but a very uh, rational or, or high value service in the market today, which is, will help you take the, the thinking out of accumulating Bitcoin, basically. And I think, yeah. I think you're offering some other services that is basically positioning you as a kind of Bitcoin neo bank in a market so that you can offer some of these services that you just to customers that you just referred to, like people that do yeah. want some stable coin access and people that do want some borrowing options and stuff like that. But what's been the growth like for you guys in terms of, you know, users and volume and that kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I see I haven't um, sort of put out, um, you know, our numbers out there just yet. Uh, but let me just give you a con. Let me just give you a sense of um, what, um, it's like so we from, from the product and point of view we currently offer um you know a consumer app that does dca that does um, bitcoin lending um stable coins currently being tested um we currently also offer you know lightning remittances you know and payments on the lightning network um as well so those are sort of um, the products that we have and virtual cards as well. So of course, with these virtual cards, we're able to go around um, the current challenges that people have here. So, you know, dollar you like a virtual type, visa card, like a virtual visa card. So but ours is a MasterCard, right? Um, with stable coin balances, right? That, you know, we're eventually going to give um, physical cards as well that people could use um, or all, all around the world. Um, on the back of that, we sort of have APIs for all of these things. So everything on our consumer product is sort of built on APIs that we've built most of uh, in-house. So, you know, uh, we run our own nodes, Lightning, Bitcoin. We're not really dependent on any other companies to do that. And we recently, just recently sort of opened that up to, to the public to say, hey, you know, come build uh, your own stuff um, on this. Uh, and it's been, it's been, I think, um, you know, it's been growing fast. We've seen a lot of fintechs and other businesses already, you know, doing integrations and whatnot. And, uh, I mean, including one of the biggest churches in the country, you know, they're sort of starting this Bitcoin fund, uh, fundraising, um, sometime should be live sometime next week, probably Monday or Wednesday should be live. So we're seeing, we're seeing optics and from around Africa as well. So South Africa. Um, you know, Cameroon, Senegal, we're already seeing fintechs integrating mostly uh, the lightning uh, bit of things. Um, on the consumer products, yeah, we're just clocking around, you know, 30K um, customers as well. We've done, I can't mention the exact number, but we, we've done millions of sure, um, sure. dollars of transactions, uh, worth of transactions. And, you know, it's, and that is just in Bitcoin, right? Like all of those transactions are in Bitcoin. So, it's, it's growing steadily. And the interesting thing is that even though we're in a beer market, we're seeing people still, you know, we haven't seen a drop in the patterns, especially when it comes to dollar cost averaging. Uh, in fact, it's okay and going higher, which I think, because, because the biggest challenge for us was really a case of um, 
we needed to change consumer behavior. We needed to get people to fail, to have a banking experience without thinking of trading or speculation, right? And we feel like it's catching, uh, it's catching on. So I think growth, growth has been steady um, when it comes to the numbers because of, you know, the beer market and what's not. It's not really as bad as, you know, we thought it would be in a beer market. So I think in a way that's a good thing in the, that's a good thing in itself. Um, but we're just getting in the period where we're ramping up marketing activities. We haven't really done um, any marketing for a while. We've just been building, building, building. And instead of time to just go all out uh, in the market, which sort of informed our sponsorship of the Nigerian Premier League and the other marketing activities we're doing right now. So I'm bullish, I'm positive, but at the same time, it's sort of slow and steady, strong fundamentals. Yeah. Yeah. That's yep, the yep. best way to go, in my opinion. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm going to come back to that church story in a bit because we talked about it in Norway and I think it's really fascinating. But before we do that, you know, another conversation we had was, I can't remember the exact details, but it was something someone brought up due process in terms of like, you know, <laughs> it's uh, it, in, in Nigeria and you like yeah, that was, burst that was out that. laughing like you, you had a, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, exactly. You, you had a big gut busting laugh and, you know, it makes me think. Basically, what you're building with Bitcoin, and this is all, this is the case with Bitcoin companies all around the world, because it doesn't matter if you're in a developed market or a, a market with like very high capital controls. Bitcoin is antithetical to the existing financial system, and so you're going to bump up against the regulations at some point, because Bitcoin is an open, free system to everyone with no manipulation and nobody in charge, and it's trying to integrate or offer services to people that are already within a system that's highly controlled, that's highly restrictive, that's not yep. free and open, that's slow, that's inefficient, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is always part of the problem is how, how Bitcoin becomes integrated. And as you just described, I mean, there's, so, there's such high capital controls in, in Nigeria, controls around the dollar, et cetera. And here you come offering solutions to a lot of that. You're offering people stable coin balances. You're offering people prepaid visas so they can spend as much USD if they want, as long as, you know, if they purchase it with Bitcoin balances, you're offering them a, an ability to uh, opt out of the system by saving in Bitcoin. So you're basically like undermining a lot of those yeah. efforts. And so, you know, are, what's, are, are you concerned about the target you're placing on yourself in an environment like that? Or what's been the experience so far? Yeah. I mean, um, myself on and Bitnob, it's like, um, you know, the best way to call it is sort of, um, we're like rebels with a cause and our cause is freedom. Right. So nice. it's, <clears throat> I mean, there, there are so many ways to, um, it's it, at the end of the day, it's someone has to stand up and do the right thing. Right. Someone has to stand up and do the right thing, regardless of the cause. Um, and you know, that is my conviction, right? That is my conviction. All I'm doing is providing an alternative. I am not collapsing what you have. I'm just saying that everyone has the right to, you know, freedom. Freedom is a fundamental human right in the first place. It doesn't need to be said. It doesn't need to be written in any book. Um, so all I'm doing, all my company is doing is just saying, hey, look, you probably have your own constraints as to why you can't do certain things, right? Maybe you went to take money from the IMF and they said, you can't do this, you can't do that. 
you know, but the people don't have to suffer for it. Right. The people don't have to suffer for it. If some people are okay suffering for it, I am not okay suffering for it. So if no one uses my product, I will use it because I need it. Right. And that is the power it gives me as a builder that I can build what I want for myself. Right. So, um, I'm genuinely not concerned as far as I'm concerned. I am, you know, here to help people. Um, I am not, I don't have a shit coin they have to buy. You know, I am not speculating for them. You know, I'm saying, look, if you want a way out, if you want an alternative, then this is it. Now, we're not forcing anyone to do that. Right. And then people, and then it's the current system that drives these people to do that. Right. People, Mm -hmm. if everything was working as intended, because don't forget the people running these systems, they're supposed to serve the people. So if they are pushing the people away and they're not doing what they're doing, then they failed at their own jobs, right? And then they shouldn't blame us for failing at their own jobs. If the system was working, if there wasn't running a lot of capital controls, then you likely wouldn't see a lot of people flock into Bitcoin, you know, in places like Nigeria. But people flock to it because of necessity. People need to survive, right? Inflation. People don't have any control over the policies that the central banks, you know, institute. So what's their way out? What's the way for a peaceful revolution? What's the way for a peaceful way out? It's Bitcoin, right? So all I'm doing is saying this is a peaceful protest. And believe you me, um, I also have the strong conviction that I want Nigeria to succeed. I think I, I strongly believe that it's a country with a lot of potential, right? You know, when I meet Nigerians on the streets, they're very hardworking, some of the most hardworking people I've met, very talented, you know. But we missed out on the early days of the internet, right? And we're just catching up. But now here's Bitcoin. Bitcoin is still in its early days and it's going to be a global phenomenon. Someday, how do we tap into this from an early from really from the earliest of times, right? It's by building services that people can go argue. I can go argue for bidding up anywhere today because I'm not, I've not stolen anyone's money, right? All I've done is provide a service to people that they have the options of, you know, opting into. So I'm really not worried. Um, I think, I think, I think most Nigerians is something that they will stand uh, behind, right? And because it's the right thing to do. If some people who are supposed to do their job haven't really done a great job at, at it, even if, you know, maybe there was some things that were outside of their own control, uh, then someone has to get up and do something. And many more people will get up and do something about it. So that's, that's, that's really what it is for me. I'm not worried. Good. Is, is Nigeria the type of place, because, you know, what I'm hearing, I agree totally, right? But history yeah. is littered with with cases of people who stood up for freedom, tried to do the right thing, and got hammered back down because, yeah. you know, yeah. that's the the nature of oppressive regimes or companies or systems or whatever. And so is is that I I think you're not worried because you you, you know you have so much conviction in the cause that you don't even care. You're like, you know, this is right, so I'm going to do it. But is there any I mean, in Nigeria, is there a risk that you could be shut down? You yourself could be, you know, harmed or, or restricted in some capacity. Is that, 
a concern, even if you're not afraid of it happening? Like, is there a possibility it could happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, um, there's, there's always a possibility that um, this could happen, right? Things just need to probably get worse, right? And, you know, someone just needs to find some people to blame. And <laughs> I mean, it, it has happened before, right? So, um, <laughs> so I mean, the, the central bank has blamed us for things before. So, but, you know, yeah, it, it could happen. It's definitely a possibility in Nigeria. It definitely is. Right. Yeah. And does it change how you, you have to be an entrepreneur, you know, like as an entrepreneur in a quote unquote stable market, let's just take the U S for example. And there's lots of problems there too, but at least they can have certain assurances that there's some things they don't have to worry about. Uh, but you probably have to worry about more than your American counterpart would have to worry about. Does that change the nature of like how you plan the business, how you operate the business, how you think about strategy, all that stuff? Yeah, it changes. It actually changes everything because, um, if I was in the U S, um, I'd be, I'd, you know, I'd waking up thinking of how to scale. Right. But over here, you know, the first thing, first principles here is whatever you're building, how do you build to survive? How do you build to yeah. be anti-fragile? And that is very difficult, um, to do, right. How do you stay safe yourself? How do you make sure that your team is safe? Um, you know, how do you make sure that, you know, when they come for you, you know, you really have something that is still running. So fundamentally it changes, it changes everything in a way, psychologically, it's like you are in a war zone, right? It's like, this is right. I'm trying to do this, but you're trying to frustrate me and make it. So it's really fundamentally, you know, for us, whatever we're building is guys, first and foremost, how does this stay anti-fragile, Right. And after that as well, it's, I mean, I mean, the way we operate is not really a way where we go out to tease them or whatever, right? It's like whenever they're ready to say, okay, these are clear regulations, we're really okay abiding by them. Because I mean, for me, at the end of the day, it's providing access to people to Bitcoin, right? When they get that Bitcoin and they can start doing self-custody over time, right? I want a situation where tomorrow, if someone is saying, oh, okay, we're banning all Bitcoin platforms, I have at least 10 million, 20 million Nigerians with Bitcoin on non-custodial wallets, right? So for now, we're willing to do whatever it takes to actually get people to that, to that place, right? So it could come with its risk and everything, but I think, I think it's what, it's what they try. It's what they try. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I totally agree with that. And before, like, we probably should ask you about this uh, earlier to kind of set the scene, but like, what was it like growing up in an environment like Nigeria? I think most of the world is pretty ignorant to, you know, I, I hate to say this, but like yeah. what, what life is like in the global South pretty much, you know, but certainly, yeah. you know, Nigeria and it like my impressions and probably the impressions of a lot of people is like a fairly intense, chaotic sort of environment. There's a ton of people. It's hot as hell. You know, it's like, um, but I think you know, we're, we're, we're kind of appreciating that there's a, there's a certain dynamism there as well. There's like, there's some sort of drive to just develop in, in certain respects. And so like yeah. with all that, with all the different opportunities and problems and chaos and stuff, what, like, what was it like for you growing up there? Because I'm also curious from the perspective of why was it instilled in you, this idea of freedom? Like, why did that become so important to you? Why did, when, when you saw it represented in Bitcoin, why was that so attractive to you that you wanted to dedicate your life to offering it to as many people as possible? Yeah. You know, so 
Yeah. Well, you know, where did that come from and what was it like growing up there? Mm. I mean, so when you look at Nigeria as a whole, right, um, you know, I would, I would use the U.S. as an example. So if you go to New York, it's fast paced, right? It's just everyone hustling, doing their thing. Uh, and then you go to D.C. and it's just quiet, right? And then maybe you go to Oakland, you know, the mid, the Midwest or whatever, you know, you go to the Midlands and it's just, you know, everyone is just doing their farm stuff and it's just quiet towns and whatever. Um, it's, it's, it's similar over here, right? So when you go to places like Lagos, it's, it's, it's chaotic, right? I don't like Lagos. I don't want to spend 24 hours in Lagos. Like I just want to go in and out. Uh, but the energy there is once you go in, you just, it's like, you just have to tap into the energy and, you know, it's just, just sort of get Get going. Um, I grew up in a place um, called um, Jos. So uh, it's in the central part of Nigeria. We call it the Middle Belt. Um, and, you know, growing up for me was, you know, sort of just from an average family, you know, went to school, uh, had five other brothers, four other brothers, you know, we go to school, come back, um, you know, learned how to read really early, you know, you know, picking up novels. Our parents just made sure that, you know, the only thing you have to do when you get back to school is read. And the only other thing you're allowed to do is go play football, you know, maybe for an hour, come back, um, do the shows. Uh, we didn't have a girl in the house, so we did all the shows. We cooked, we cleaned, did everything. And so, so it was, um, uh, on the home front, it was pretty, it was mostly, um, okay for a really long time. Um, but generally where I grew up from, um, had, you know, has had some of the intense, most intense violence in Nigeria's history. Right. So, um, mostly religious, uh, violence, right. So mostly fights between the Christians uh, and the Muslims. Right. So it was, it was, um, it was really, um, a really dark period. So we grew up, you know, um, with periods where we had to pull our friends, you know, from rubbles because they got bombed somewhere, you know, had to go for, you know, we had a lot of mass burials, you know, once in a while we still do, right. You know, you know, having villages attacked, you know, by bandits, by terrorists, you know, sort of, sort of like, you know, running away from home, you know, sleeping in the bush, you know, just to survive. And, you know, periods where, you know, there are certain parts of town that you couldn't go to because it wasn't safe enough. Uh, and just, just living with some uncertainty that, you know, people could start shooting at you from anywhere. So it was, um, it was really brutal, the violence. And I saw how we just turned what used to be like a very beautiful city, uh, you know, into, into just a chaotic, um, place where it's just about, you know, the fights, the guns, the bombs and whatever. Um, you know, when, when I started, when Bitcoin started making sense and I started understanding money in general, you know, money better, the flow of money and the reason why people do certain things. And you discover that some of these fights that we had were because of resources. And that was because there were a few people who just wanted to take control of those resources, right? And they were willing to put people's lives, you know, on the line or at stake to do that, right? So when you go deep down, it's actually because of the money. So the money itself at the base is corrupt. And the few people who have the money that the ones who do those things, when you go for an election and there and there are thugs, you know, they're the ones to do that. The people who control the system want people to stay uneducated because they need thugs to hire for their things because they want to be able to just give them something little and have those people depend on them 
for their feeding in order to use them for whatever nefarious activities that they have. So in a system where people were more, you know, wealthy and stable, I mean, John, who is going to come to you right now and say, hey, you know, John, take this $500, go shoot that other person. You know, come on. It's, it's not going to work because you are okay. You know, <laughs> you don't need that money. But for someone, $50 to go do something, to go attack another person, it's a lot of money. Right. So the more you keep people poor, the more you can use them for those things. And that, that, that was sort of the trick. So for me, it's like, I looked at it. How can I help, you know, solve this? How can I help get my people to a place where we're not fighting each other because there were, there are a few people, you know, instigating us to fight against one another when at the end of the day, it's for political control and for resource control. And I thought that, you know, if you had a people that were more, um, you know, financially stable, that were higher up the ladder, then no one would come use them. If you had a lot of these kids, you know, able to go to school, you know, have decent jobs, then, you know, no one, I've not met anyone who has something decent to do that wants to get into trouble. But, you know, a lot of people who don't have anything doing, they don't mind whatever it is. They just want to have a sense of they're doing something. Whether it's bad, they don't care. And if you pay them for it, excellent. Um, so can I instigate a revolution on the streets? Probably not, right? How do I help with that? How do I make sure that then it means that I have to get what I believe is the soundest money, is the strongest money into people's hands, right? That gives them an opportunity up the ladder. Now, I'm not saying it fixes everything, but I'm saying that it gives a chance. It gives people a chance. And that's something that I'm like sort of really willing to take a shot at because I have seen these things, right? I have seen dead friends. I've seen dead family members, right? We've carried them, we've gone buried them. So we've seen violence, you know, at the core level of violence, right? So, and it's not something that I wish on anyone and something that I want to stop. And I think that with a stronger system, with the more informed people who have, you know, who are well-educated, who are okay to cater for themselves, then we're going to have less of these kinds of uh, violence. Yeah. I mean, I think that's extremely well put. And I think Bitcoin is helping more people around the world appreciate that that is the way out of these circumstances. Because as you say, I mean, when people are placed in a, a state of deprivation, it's really easy to control them because people get hungry. And if you say, I've got some food for you, but all you got to do is go and do whatever I want you to, to that person over there, then you might resist for a while. But if your baby is starving, you're probably going to say, sure, I'll do it, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And, and that's how people remain manipulatable, right? People that, that people remain controlled. But as every, as each individual starts to make that choice that allows them to increasingly remove themselves from that state of deprivation, then they become harder and harder and harder and harder to control. And if enough people do that, then all the foot soldiers that all these people use to control people for them, they no longer can be as easily paid off, right? Because they're not in a state of deprivation either. And then the, the, the systems of control that have been in place forever, they start to dissipate. They start to dissolve. True. And, yeah. and I think this is why as, as, as noble as so many of the activists and, and people that have come before are in, in striving to remove an oppressive regime and, in, and put in place of it something better, something more honest, something more noble, 
Unfortunately, over the course of time, if you don't fix that base layer, which is, as you say, the money, then it degrades in the same way. And then someone who, someone who, you know, maybe for a hundred years, it's great because, you know, you have a strong culture of virtue and character and honesty and, and freedom, but yeah. eventually someone, someone gets at the helm and they don't have those things. And they realize that they're at the head of an apparatus that can, that can <laughs> deprive people enough to control them. And so if we don't fix that base layer, we don't have a hope of rectifying these problems. And Bitcoin is that thing that helps to fix the, the base layer and all it takes is for each individual to start making the choice to do so. True, true, true. I agree with you. And I mean, I mean, um, something I was going to mention earlier that I forgot as well is, um, you know, for a country like Nigeria, um, when, when, when we talk about the base layer as well, is that um, who actually controls Nigeria's money, right? You know, it's um, international bodies, right? Um, you know, it's countries like the US, right? So through the IMF, right? So at the end of the day, uh, it's like, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the cancelling effect and whatever terms they give us in order to give us a loan, those are the things that we have to do. So even at the, at the end of the day, it's like, we don't really have true freedom, right? So if they say they're not going to give us aid or whatever tomorrow, and you know, then we have to play, we have to play ball in order to get that right. But, you know, even as a country, right, if we have a lot of Bitcoin, if we do Bitcoin, we have control over our own wealth, then we can then go and say, okay, you want our resources, you want this, you want that. Okay, this is how we want it, this is how we're gonna do it, right? It's not then there's less bullying even 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 as a country. And that's why sometimes, you know, I can't really blame the regulators for everything that they do because there are certain things beyond their own powers, right? So um we, we saw we saw what the IMF told um, Argentina in order to give them the last, you know, bailouts that they did, you know, sort of like, hey, do this against cryptocurrencies, do this. And, and that is it, right? At the end of the day, you have, if Nigeria is going to the IMF today and say, okay, we want $100 million, and the IMF is saying, okay, you look, you know, you're going to ban crypto, you're going to say no one can touch crypto in the country and everything. They need the money. What are they going to do? Mm. Nothing. So just, okay, guys, no one should touch crypto because they need that $100 million from the U.S., but if we are okay, if as a country we have Bitcoin in our reserves and whatnot, then we're able to go out there and say, okay, like, these are the terms that we want to deal. Come to the table. And if you don't come, we're going to work with another partner. And that, that's just it. That's, that's how it happens. Yeah. And, that, and that's freedom. The ability yeah, to freedom. choose yep. right, for yourself what you want for yourself. Yeah. And everyone should have that choice. And, and, and Bitcoin is slowly giving people the option to foster that in their own lives whether and as communities as families and as nations you know that the same dynamic exists on every level it seems yeah um you know one of the questions that comes to mind when you're describing your childhood and i don't want to sound like a douche by saying this i don't think you'll take it that way but uh sure. you know like what do you think about your place in the world when you're growing up in an environment like that you know, because so I grew up in Canada. Right. And like when you're a kid, you don't really you don't really consider it. You're just like, well, this is normal. And the things you see on TV and everything reinforces that. And you don't really know, like, is like, am I privileged? Am I not privileged? Am I you know, where am I in it? And then, yeah. you know, as you grow up in school, you learn about other areas of the world. And you're like, oh, my God, like there's a lot of poverty in that area. And you start to realize, oh, actually, you, you kind of are privileged. You're in one of the privileged areas of the world. And, and that was kind of my experience of growing up. But, yeah. you know, you would seem 
it would seem to me that you possibly had a different experience. So how did you start to conceptualize your place in the world and like what your upbringing was like as you started to grow up and become educated and stuff? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, you know, it's uh, in the earliest days, you know, um, when when we read books, you know, I started reading novels at a very early stage. Right. So and, you know, uh, some of these novels were sort of um, the setting is, you know, Chase Hadley novels, you know, um, and other novels and the settings were always, you know, outside where I am. And I'm like, oh, this is how things work there. And, you know, it's like, okay, why don't things work there over here? Like, okay, like, like are we caused or something, you know? <laughs> you know, I just, you just, you just sort of think about it and you're like, okay. Um, I think one of the, one of the things that was funny to me was, you know, we used to watch this, um, uh, you know, kids stuff on TV. And, you know, we said that the kids in the U.S., you know, they go to school with, you know, just whatever they wear from home, right? Uh, but for us, we need to always put on these school uniforms to go to school. I'm like, damn, I don't like that. Like, ah, why, why do we have to do this? <laughs> <laughs> why do we have to do this? And then um, you saw that you saw that the kids um, that we saw on TV seemed more confident, uh, seemed to know what they're doing. And, you know, you looked at these countries, everything seemed to just go well, like the law works, everything just works. But over here, it's just like, you know, it's just, yeah, anything for anything, anything goes, right? And they are suddenly thinking like, um, uh, and there's this funny joke that we always ask ourselves in school that, you know, um, wow, what angel put me in a database to be born here? You know, why didn't they give birth to me <laughs> somewhere in Scandinavia, somewhere in Switzerland, you know? So <laughs> it used to be this um, running joke. But I think, you know, over time for me, luckily for me, um, you know, my mom tried to like really um, instill confidence in me, right? Say, hey, you can do this. Um, our teachers in school did a great job uh, of doing that as well. Um, but there was always that, okay, if you can compete locally, but what of them globally, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, um, you know, I went to school, uh, I had some missionary teachers as well. So a few teachers from the U.S. as well. You know, and they, okay, this is how things work there. You know, okay, this is, this is, and it's like, okay, uh, it's not so different in some ways. Like, okay, uh, at, um, at the human level, it's not really that different. Okay, but at the systemic level, like there's sort of this wide gap when it comes to the systems. But as human beings, we're really, really just the same, right? Because there's always this thinking that the person from abroad, that the white man is much, much smarter than you are, right? And you don't really know what you're doing. Um, but, you know, Growing up, reading more books, testing myself, you know, doing some of these things as well. So I think I think one of the things that helped me, you know, really conceptualize that much faster was, you know, when I sort of started doing like freelancing online, right? So I was building stuff for people in the US, other places, you know, some of some of the things people bid on them and I win and I do a really great job and say, Oh, you did a really great job, you know, you're smart and everything. I'm like, oh, okay, okay. Okay, I can do it. I can, I can take on the world, right? Um, and, you know, conceptualize that, you know, really believed in myself, you know, just looked at myself and say, okay, look, um, people read books over there and we also read books over here, right? The same math we do, it's sort of, we all went to school, right? At the end of the day, uh, it's like confidence. So sometimes when I hear someone in America say something stupid online, I'm like, okay, okay. Can you be that stupid? Right? So 
I mean, it really helped me conceptualize a lot of these things. Um, and I think Bitcoin also did a lot for me. Um, can you hear me? Yep. Okay, lost. Okay, yeah. And Bitcoin also did a lot for me, right? Um, in that regard, in the sense that I, you know, at a point in time, I'm having to like explain Bitcoin to people outside of Nigeria, right? And say, okay, this is how things work. This is how things work. And I think the nailing, I think the nail on the coffin for me was, you know, the point where I discovered that this world is all about perspectives. And I recent, I discovered that, you know, um. As you said, you know, you grew up in Canada, right? Um, and then that was just your little part of the world that you knew, right? But you didn't really know about, you know, how things happened in Africa or other parts of the world, right? And I discovered that, you know, okay, it's about perspectives. That person knows more about what they know and I'm better than them on with what I know as well, right? So it's like, um, we're going to be trading knowledge at this point in time. I don't see myself as better than you. And I don't see you as better than I am, right? So it's like we're treating ourselves with respect and saying, okay, this is what I know, this is what I don't know, and can you educate me on these, right? And you know, sort of, and it just it just struck sort of a balance for me, right? And it brought that confidence booster. It boost boosted my confidence, you know, a lot because I just felt like, you know, um, no one is really all knowing as we were, you know. As we used to think when we were younger, no one's really all knowing. And there's always something that we know that the next person doesn't know. And with what we know, if we have a lot of confidence, we can actually do great things globally, not just from a local, not just not just locally, right? So that's why even whatever I'm doing with BitNob, I'm like, okay, this should be able to compete at a global level, right? It should just be, it shouldn't just be like, you know, sort of a look a local you know, solution, it should be something that, you know, anyone anywhere in the world looks at this, respects that, okay, there was a lot of actual engineering work that went into this. So it's like, can I be world-class in every single thing that I do? Can I stand among the best in what I'm doing around the world? And that sort of just boosted my confidence. And look, you know, it's just about who puts in the most work and not about, you know, where you are born. So that really helped. Totally. Uh, What... When you were like, and I think that's an amazing perspective to have, but when you were, so for, for me again, to, to use the example again, yeah. like when I started growing up, I was, I tried to figure out why was it that the situation that I was in was the way it was, you know, like why was the North America and Western Europe more stable and developed than most parts of the world? Like what led yeah. to that? When, yeah. when you were growing up, did you wonder like, why is it that I'm seeing, you know, the violence I'm seeing around me or the chaos around me. Like, like, why is it that this part of the world is functioning in that way? Did you ask yourself those questions or did you just get on Ah. with, you know, trying to learn? I asked a lot of those questions and I still do, right? I still do. Um, And to a large extent, you know, it's one of those things where you are never able to actually get the answers because um, when you look at it, it's like, you know, growing up, I understand, I now got to understand that, you know, every part of the world has peculiar problems, has problems peculiar to them, right? So no one is actually perfect, but, you know, there's a certain level of, you know, comfort that every human being should have. Why are we not attaining that level of comfort, safety, and, you know, security and whatnot, just like that, you know? And then you look at it and it's like, uh, I think for me, the biggest learning has been the difference in institutions, right? So weaker institutions here, right? 
uh, than what is, you know, obtained abroad as well. And then you look at them, um, there's the one thing that we can't discount, of course, it's, you know, the effect of, you know, colonialism, right, around the continent as well, right? So for like Nigeria, as so we say, okay, look, the British, the British just set up like, you know, a structure that sort of still benefits them in a way, right? It's sort of just sort of a structure that benefits them in the way. And everything they came to do was just take, 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 and take, and never give back, right? So then you now understand that the problem is actually more complex than we're thinking. That when you look at places like Francophone Africa, you know, especially with the places like Togo, where they have dictators, places like Cameroon, it's that they are supported by Western powers as well. All right. So you're looking at it that it's not just a leadership problem here, it's that there is money somewhere, right? There are a set of people somewhere who benefit from the dysfunction in this society, right? So it's, it's one of those things where it just takes you down a rabbit hole where you're going to study more history to understand all of these things. But it's a question that, you know, we keep asking, and I strongly believe that to an extent as well, that it's something that we can do something about. It's a thing that we can do something about. And bet you me, the root of it again goes back to the money. Yeah. Because it's all about it, the resources. Yeah. Totally. It, was there ever... You know, because on the one hand, you look perhaps you see on the Internet, on TV, you see like life, like you mentioned, the the school children, like in the U.S., for example. And you look at it, you're like, oh, wow, that looks great. I wish I had something like that. Yeah. But on the other hand, as you grow up, you begin to realize like, well, part of the reason they have what they have is because what's been done to the people of my area of the world. Right. As you mentioned, the kind of the theft of wealth that happened in the colonial era and still is ongoing in many, in many cases. And even yeah. it's far in many, in many places today, it's far more vague, you know, it's under the surface, it's systemic, it's part of the, the financial system, all that kind of stuff. But like, was there, how did you reconcile the two of being like, I like that and want it, but I'm starting to realize that part of, at least in part, it was achieved by non-noble or, 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 yeah. means that I don't yes. agree with, let's say. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so, so it's, it's like, it's like, um, it's, it's one of those things that I think a lot of people in Africa go through, right. As we sort of, um, you know, become more exposed as say, okay, this is, this is the thing I've always wanted, but this is how it was gotten. Right. So am I, okay, mm -hmm. do I still want it? And then again, you realize that this is a combination of so many factors, right. That, you know, um, yes, the colonialists were there, they came, they tried to plunder, they do whatever they did, but they didn't do it alone, right? So it's like, ah, we're sharing the blame because some of us sold ourselves, you know, into slavery. And and then, and then you know, and if something like if you're not careful, right, then it breeds some sort of resentment, you know, on the other side. But then you meet people from the other side who are also fighting for freedom, right? You meet people from the other side who are also saying, look, this was wrong, right? This was it. And then you meet people on the other side who really fought, you know, to say, okay, free these people. This is not how things should be. We don't agree with this way of life. And you realize that, okay, there are systems and then there are we as a people, right? That, you know, the person who is enjoying that thing is not really that, you know, that's, it's just, it's just what just came for them, right? Okay. Uh, and then you flip it. If we were, if I was in their shoes, you know, it's probable that, you know, my ancestors could have done the same thing. So you just like, okay, it's just how the world works in a way. Like, oh, okay, okay, that's what I mean. <laughs> and then you get that, you sort of start getting to that point where, you know, that, okay, there's, there's really no, 
you know, I'm still at a place where there's really no direct person to place and say, you cost all of it. It's like, there are so many factors that come to play um, with these things. So, I mean, at that point, you just, it comes down again to perspectives, right? To say, okay, um, will I never touch an iPhone or something? Like, okay, can I maybe look at this and see what's the way forward? And people are different, right? Some people prefer to sort of stick to the past to say, this what was done to us. Like, I must make sure I fix this. For other people, it's really, okay, what's, what has happened has happened, right? But how do we rectify it and make sure that it never happens again? How do we pick up the pieces from this and make sure that, you know, we don't repeat this mistake? I'm more of the latter, right? It has happened, it has yeah. happened. You know, how do we make sure that it doesn't repeat itself? How do we, you know, sort of make sure that people are more freer? There's uh, more equity around the world and there's, you know, people respect each other around the world where one man doesn't see himself as sort of better than at the next the person next to him as well. So I'm more of, yeah, let's, 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 let's move forward. Let's move forward. Never forgetting the past or not dwelling in the past as well. Yeah. I think that's an extremely wise perspective. And, you know, on that note, were there any influences both in your immediate environment or like intellectual in the form of books and philosophers and that kind of stuff that helped to inform this perspective that you've been espousing and your ideas around freedom and what's right and wrong and, and, and that kind of stuff as you grew up, like, does anything stand out as helping you cultivate your perspective on all this? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, the first, the first thing for me, it's definitely the Bible, right? It's probably my favorite, <laughs> probably my favorite book. I feel like you, you know, you can find the answers to everything in the Bible, right? You just need, to, <laughs> you just need to know where to look. And sometimes you're not even looking and you find sort of, ah, okay, okay, this talks about this in a way. And, you know, it's like, uh, there's a part in the Bible in Ecclesiastes where it says everything is um, vanity, right? So the Bible is one of those, um, it's, it's one of those books where I sort of take a lot of the outlook on life, on love, you know, loving someone as yourself, uh, you know, you know, forgiveness and all of those things. Like it's really... It's like for every blessing you read in the Bible, that's sort of this special thing that you can apply to to your life today in it. So it's been uh, it's been one of those really influential books. I mean, the other books that sort of influenced my thinking in a way uh, are more of um, local, local, local books. So um, they mostly talk about Nigerian society back in the day. Right. And it just gives me a lot of perspective as well. Um, so people like Chinao Achebe, so they wrote, um, he wrote, he was this really great, um, author in Nigeria. He wrote a lot of books about, you know, sort of, uh, the Nigerian, you know, entity in the, back in the day. Um, I really loved his books. Um, things fall apart, most especially, you know, just how a society, how one particular person is this, the way he is. And, you know, I, I just sort of loved the way he did it. And I think one thing he did for me, someone like him did for me, was I felt if a Nigerian could really write like this and people all around the world love the books, then I think I can do great things too. So it's like, okay, you know, so there was, there was that influence of you can do it just from reading um, um, his works as well. Um, the other person whose books I really liked and shaped um, my thinking mostly around history of Nigeria uh, it's someone called, um, so it's, uh, it's a Monica. It's sort of like a pseudonym, uh, uh, called Max Siloan. So Max wrote books about Nigeria soldiers of fortune back in the day. And, um, you know, uh, things like what Britain did to Nigeria. Right. So it's like, okay, you read these books and then you have, uh, I forgot a couple of the other authors who wrote mostly about, you know, 
Nigeria, you know, um, Africa, Francophone Africa, and the French, you know. So I've read a lot of uh, these Pan-Africanist books, right, as well. So there's um, this other person, um, uh, Professor Lumumba, as well, who, you know, really talks about Pan-Africanism and, you know, sort of our relationship with the West. And it's really... So putting together all of these perspectives, right, it really helps me look at things to say, okay, this is this is it. This is this is what the world actually looks like in a way historically. Because I'm a big student of history. I love reading history in order to understand, you know, sort of how civilizations have happened. And I'll tell you one thing: civilizations, one civilization has always conquered another civilization. So I've so I've come to peace with the fact that one man will always try to conquer the next man to him, right? One civilization will always say, look. This is the way things should be done. And if we're stronger than these people, we can go conquer them. Imagine how many countries the U.S. can go force themselves on today, right? And say, this is how things should be done because we Americans have the power to make you do that um, today. So that helped. I think when it comes to things like innovation, um, you know, business general, someone like Clay Christensen, like I'm really big fan of Clay Christensen. So he wrote this book, uh, this very amazing book called um, how, titled How Will You Measure Your Life? Right. And it just sort of just put a big perspective. It's like, okay, but how will you measure your life? I was like, okay, so what do I want to do? I mean, for me, it's really the way I measure my life. It's by, you know, how much I'm able to be of service to other people. And that's sort of like a North, North Pole for me. Like not really what I get out of it, but really how have I applied myself in service to other people? So those are some of the books, but most especially the Bible. It's, it's really, uh, it's really, it's really a big one for me. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm I'm actually I, I've never read the Bible cover to cover. Yeah. You know, I've read yeah. snippets of it. Um, but now I am reading it cover to cover and it's dense. Nice. You know, so it take it takes some time to get through. But <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. Uh, I'm very much enjoying it. Um yeah, it what what do you make, you know, based off all that, how old are you? Um twenty nine. I'll be thirty um, what's today's date? I'll be 30 in August. <laughs> the 17th of June. Yeah. yeah okay. I'll be 30 nice. on the 22nd of August. Yeah. So, so with, with this, with this, you know, attitude of being intentional about cultivating your perspective and figuring out how things are going, what is your sense of how Nigeria has changed uh, over the course of your life your, or at least as long as you've been paying attention, maybe since you were, you know, a young teenager or something like that, like, yeah. What do you make of what's been happening in Nigeria and the progression, evolution, progress, digression? You know, what, what's been going on? I think the first thing I'll say is um, we've gotten to a place where um, impunity is seen as normal and sort of uh, a place where uh, we can't do much about corruption again. So it's like at a point, it's like we're really fighting it. But right now, it's like, hey, you know, uh, it's Nigeria. You can't really do anything about it. It's like, uh, it's, <laughs> it's like um, even people who want to fight, it just feel like, okay, you're going to be alone in the fight, right? So I think we've sort of um, regressed uh, in that uh, regard. I think poverty as well has really, like we've gotten, I think um, we were having sort of more poor people than we we've ever had, which is not a good thing. Um, even though we, we have resources and the resources are just, the resources are not actually going down. They're you know, sort of growing. We're having more, but you know, you can't really see the wealth. So the wealth gap is really just moving, 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 moving. Um, I think 
it's like a disappearing middle class as well in a way, right? Um, when you look at um, the, I think, I think so sort of the silver lining on all of this, right? So of course there's a doom bloom. I think our institutions are at their weakest as well um, over time. I think the institutions were working at a point in time. Um, there was a time where a lot of Nigerians in the diaspora were coming back home to build businesses. So, you know, 99 to around 2007, Nigerians were coming back home to build businesses. But now it's like everyone wants to leave, right? Everyone just wants to leave the country, which just shows you like, these are like two extremes. Everyone wanted to come back and serve and build a business. And then now probably just less than 15 years in, everyone wants to leave, right? Um, a lot of the young educated people have given up on the country. People with like really good jobs, what you call a really good job in Nigeria, well paid, want to leave because you know, they don't feel secure, right? Um, they feel like the system doesn't work. Um, they feel like the courts don't work and whatever. So it's like, also like it's for the highest bidder. So it's the highest bidder runs the country at the point, at this point in time. I think the silver lining for this is, um, uh, we've made great advancement in things like, um, like FinTech, right? So I think, um, you know, when you look at tech, we've like really, um, made a lot of, um, advancements. So, um, you know, service sort of like the, our GDP, the, what, what, what service economy is really in things like it, uh, you know, I are putting, I adding to the GDP is increasing, which I think can be a really good thing, right? But of course, you know, the fundamentals, food and everything need to be there for people to really do these things. Um, I, another thing that I think is good as well is I'm, we're sort of seeing more Nigerians on a global scale, you know, really doing amazing things and believing in themselves that we can do it. So it's like a, at an individual level, we're doing really great things, but what are we doing together as a, as a nation? Are we doing great things together as a nation? Uh, I would say no um, right now. So, you know, it's it's a mix of, it's actually more bad than than good it's it's actually it's actually like you know you don't want to cry when you're just yeah so uh, but i think for the common man for the for the man on the streets um you know for the family out there in the rural area they probably don't have any good thing to share with you like it's just just doom 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 it's just just a doom spiral unfortunately and i mean you're an entrepreneur in that country. And I think you, you, do you guys operate outside Nigeria too? Do you have operations in Ghana? Yeah, um, Ghana, and, yeah. Ghana. Yeah. So I think I know the answer to this, but mm -hmm. are you staying or do you feel compelled to, to leave as well? Or what's your plan? Nah, I finally don't have any plans <laughs> to leave. Like, uh, like, I mean, it's crazy, but I love it here. I love, I, I love it here. I love it. I think, uh, and I was thinking about it this afternoon as well, because, you know, someone brought it up like, oh, okay. Um, you have a lot of the other founders, you know, especially in crypto, they've left the country. Why are you still in the country of that? I think, um, for someone like me, who is really big on my freedom, um, I feel like I'm going to be a second class citizen anywhere I go in the world, no matter how much I'm accepted. But I feel like this is the one place that no matter how bad it gets, I can always call it home. Like I can always beat my chest and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, sort of that sort of thing. And it's very, um, it's something that's very important to me. Right. So I'm sort of just going to still be around to sort of just see what, uh, whatever way I can help. I think uh, being on ground helps me help much more. 
uh, than if I wasn't around as well. Like, you know, when you see the reality, when you meet people every day, uh, it keeps on reminding you uh, of it. If I move to maybe the US or the UK right now, I might not be meeting Nigerians back home every day. And, you know, you might just sort of forget that thing and say, okay, like, ah, everything is okay for me. And I don't think I'm at that point where um, I'm just thinking for myself right now. I think I'm at still a point where I actually want to apply myself and see how I can help um, other people. That's awesome. You know, yeah, I love that. Um, very admirable. And, you know, you know, you, you mentioned a few minutes ago where you said, you know, it's kind of the nature of human beings that it's always this, the, the person with the more power, you know, controls the people with less power. And you've kind of resigned yourself to that being the case. And no doubt that power dynamics will always exist in some capacity, but I think, you know, what's interesting with Bitcoin is that I don't know if you're familiar with the book, The Sovereign Individual, but it talks about yeah. the logic of violence yeah. and Love that book. how much. Yeah. And how much has has violence and the desire to control uh, been uh, incentivized by the ease with which wealth can be accumulated through those methods, through invading a country, through controlling a people? Because if you were more powerful, you could say, hey. That's some nice gold you have in your vault or around your neck or whatever. Give that to me now or else you die. And Bitcoin for the first time dissipates, distributes and, you know, puts that wealth in a form that is impossible to confiscate without the participation of the person who owns it. You know, gold, you could say, no, I'm not going to give you my gold, but then they could just put you in jail or kill you and go into your house and open up your safe and they have the gold, you know, and so how much does that that ever present like human condition of the power dynamics that exist how much does that change when now the most concentrated form of wealth that we have as a civilization is now like in a different realm is in a realm that can't be accessed by the people that would choose those means to to confiscate it or to get it unfairly and i so i think that that will change the balance of power and that will change that will impact how power operates in the world. And I think, you know, it's incredibly admirable that you're committed to in the place that you're from and that you care the most about are trying to be a part of making that change. And as a result, changing the balance of power, changing how the dynamics of power work in that place. So I think it's, I think it's awesome. Totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. Um, it helps. I mean, uh, I give an example earlier, you know, to say, you know, if Nigeria <laughs> sort of controlled most of their wealth, you know, and it's with Bitcoin, you know, the U.S. can't freeze any Nigerian foreign account. You know, there's no SWIFT to cut us off from or whatever, then, you know, we can always come, you know, <laughs> come on the table as equals. Even if it's not as equals, we have some bargaining power. So it definitely dissipates that. And, and that's one thing that I think, you know, over time, a lot of people will come to, uh, you know, understand about Bitcoin. I think, you know, it takes getting to a certain point and understanding Bitcoin to figure that out, to say that, okay, you know, this, this can, this can, this can at least, it won't fix everything, but it helps tilt the scale, uh, you know, totally. in a favorable way. Yeah. Totally. And, you know, you, you talk about the, the shrinking middle class in, in Nigeria, and this is a case all over the world in, in most places, there's some exceptions, yeah. but it's almost inevitable when you operate with fiat money, because as the money loses its capacity to store value, and as the people who are able to create more money are able to siphon it and allocate it in their direction and take it away from those that don't have that privilege, then monetary, not only do you get like more wealth 
being accrued to the people that are closer to the monetary spigot, as you mentioned earlier, the Cantillon effect, but also you get this monetary premium placed on all sorts of assets that shouldn't have a monetary premium, like grain stored for long term or like real estate or like all sorts of things. And that just brings up the cost of living. And what that does yeah. is it pushes more people into poverty because the cost of living goes up and you get this widening and widening and widening gap. And if we can have if we can have a means of saving and transacting that is basically all monetary premium that's available to everyone that can't be uh, can't be debased or controlled in any way then the monetary premium comes off all those things over a course of you know time. And that means all those things that people need for a at least baseline comfortable life, like food and shelter and water, the, the cost of those things comes down to what it should be, you know, what the market yeah. basically dictates it is. And that monetary premium that, that makes it inaccessible to a lot of people is removed. And so that, mm -hmm. you know, that means one of, of course, the middle class would, be bigger and more people would have access to the basics of life. And that would be, yeah. you know, a very good thing. And as you say, I mean, most people don't realize that that's one of the things that Bitcoin is most likely going to foster in, in the world and in markets and societies. But I think the the message is starting to get out there. Yeah, it's starting to get out there. I mean, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to a time where we have more people, you know, willing to study, you know, uh, Australian economics, you know, just read my season co and, you know, distance just, you know, ring a bell. It's like, it's like these guys have been talking about Bitcoin for a really long time without <laughs> talking about Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so 100%. I think uh, we'll get there. We'll definitely get there. It's just, uh, it's just being patient and we just keep doing our work. Uh, eventually, you know, the world will come along around. Yeah. And speaking of education and like outsized impacts when certain people kind of understand Bitcoin and what's going on, Maybe now is a good time for you to share the story of, of the church in Nigeria, because I thought that was a really awesome story when you told it to me in Norway. And so, yeah. you know, can you share kind of some of the details around that? Yeah, I mean, um, it's, it's, it's one of the things that, I mean, I've thought about for a bit, right? Um, um, when it comes to things like Bitcoin, you know, we have to always think about the people who need it the most as well, right? And the institutions who need it the most as well. And... You know, in a lot of ways, I see Bitcoin as a religion as well, right? Uh, in the sense that, you know, look, when you get in, it's so, uh, and you're just looking for good ways to really use it and make positive impact, right? And it's a thing that, you know, once you're in, you sort of find it, you sort of find yourself really trying to dedicate your life to it in so many ways, right? Um, so, you know, thinking about it was, in places like Nigeria, um, religion is like a really big deal, right? It's a, it's a really big deal, just as it is anywhere in the world, right? Um, but one thing that, you know, has always sort of been like a taboo to talk about, uh, you know, in religious circles is money, right? Because, uh, you know, we have the misquotes of, you know, when they say they money is the root of all evil, right? Even though it says the love of money is the root of all evil, right? So it's like, it's sort of like a taboo to talk about these things. So what then mm. happens is, you know, the church, the mosque, you know, they don't really talk about these things. And guess what? They're the ones who bear one of the, um, you know, bronze of this because they're not really sort of, um, say, revenue generating businesses or whatever, right? They're dependent on, tight offerings or whatever. So, you know, think about it. 
if most of your church members can't eat, what are they going to bring to the church as offering? You know, <laughs> they have to survive first. So you're looking at the point where <laughs> and if there's no money to run the church, because the church is dependent on the contributions from the members to do all of these things, then what happens, right? Um, the church, you know, always feeds, you know, the widows, they take care of the less privileged within them. And it's always coming from the coffers of the church, right? So either some external donations or people from it. We're looking at places like Nigeria where inflation is really affecting these things, right? So it means um, less people are giving, people are giving less money in offering, you know, uh, and even, even the tithes that you get is having less value. So really it's like a case of everything is just going down. The people are going down, the church is going down and whatnot. And, you know, uh, I'm not sure anyone does anything well on a hungry stomach, right? So you're looking at, um, and if religious institutions in places like Nigeria collapse, right, then it's like a societal, a societal collapse in many ways because for a lot of people, say Christians, for example, like, you know, the church is like, the church is, it's, it's sort of like a gathering of, you know, where you go gather and feed off each other's energy of hope, right? When it's taken away from them, then they don't have anything to fall back to, right? So, you know, when, when I met the president of the church, right, you know, we, we discussed, we discussed, you know, a lot of things and, you know, he has an accounting background and, you know, apparently people had already tried to, you know, get him to do shit coins and all of that. So you really do. Anyway, he told me one thing. Um, when we spoke about Bitcoin, he asked me a lot of questions. Now, this is someone who understands money, right? Uh, so it was really good for me because it means the questions are going to be tough and the questions are going to be intelligent, right? So, you know, we discussed a lot of those things. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, what he told me was, um... I'm the first person to talk to him about this whole crypto thing without trying to tell him to buy. I was just educating him and he thinks he understands it better now. So what's the best way to do this? You know, like, you know, you don't need to do, you don't need to learn anything extra, you know, just dollar cost averaging. That's what I do. And I mean, even for us as BitNob, one thing that we say is that what we do is what we tell you to do. That is our biggest, you know, sort of, um, uh, you know, if you say, okay, what, what sort of, what gives you credibility? What's, 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 mm-hmm. what's your call to fame, right? What's your credibility? Our credibility yeah. is that we tell you to do what we do, right? So we're not doing something else and telling you another thing. Yeah. So I don't know, okay, this is what we do. This is what I do. At least this is what I do. I've tried many things and this is what has worked best for me, right? I can dollar cost average and not have to worry about the price and still focus on other things in life, right? Without looking at the screen. Um, right. Yes, and he said, okay, just like that. And I said, yes. And he says, so when the Bitcoin price moves higher, you mean I'm just part of like the people that just sort of, and I'm like, yes, you don't have to do any work, right? And I said, it's not just about, you know, what you're getting out of it. It's really a case of, you know, you're beating inflation. So we looked at the numbers, you know, and that's the beautiful thing about Bitcoin. If anyone is willing to look at the numbers over time, over a long enough time frame, then, you know, you can't argue with the data, right? We looked at the data over a long time frame and look like, okay, this was a no brainer. Why wasn't I doing it? Like, why aren't more people doing it? I think he said, um, 
he said something that really caught my attention as well is the fact that, you know, um, inflation is really affecting the church members, right? So it's like really, it's, it's like somehow really just, you know, asking for more from the people, you know, to contribute to the church for projects and whatever, knowing that, you know, these people are suffering, like, like there's really nothing extra coming into their pockets because inflation is taken from the church, it's taken from the people as well. Right. So if more people understood this, that this is what is happening, then he's sure that people are going to be better off. Right. So how do we work on, you know, more educational efforts to ensure that we educate more people, you know, in the church to say, okay, this is how Bitcoin is. It's not really what you've always been told about, but this is how it is. Right. And we discussed, you know, other use cases of Bitcoin. I said, look, you know, um, Bitcoin crosses borders, right? And in Bitcoin, we're like a community as well. So, you know, the Bitcoiner in the US, you know, will feel more attached to me, right? Will feel more aligned with me than probably another American over there because we share values. So the same thing with Christianity. The Christian here in Nigeria feels like they share a lot of values with the Christian over there in, say, Italy, right? Than with someone who is not a Christian. So it's like, so the same way this is a body, right? We're also a body, even though we don't always meet physically, right? And we, this is, this is our ethics, right? This, this, are, this is how we think about things. And, you know, we support whatever is Bitcoin. We support whatever is Bitcoin in a good way, right? So one way we could show you the power of Bitcoin is say, okay, look, um, so the church has a charity arm. Um, they send kids to schools, they send kids to schools, they send kids, you know, they, they go for the less privileged uh, people who are displaced by the crisis I've told you about, right? Um, it's like they go get these people, you know, they are homeless people, they feed them, give them housing, basically just take care of them, right? And they're dependent on donations from church members, both at home and around the world. Now the church members around the world who want to donate are not able to really donate, Right. Because when I spoke to the director of the charity arm, he's, he said he's trying to, he's planning to go to the U.S. to go sort of like set up like a non-profit or something so that they can get a GoFundMe account. You know how long it takes to set up a non-profit in the U.S. and then get right, a GoFundMe right. account and you have a GoFundMe account, you know, it's sort of like long, it's a really long thing. So look, you're sitting on the answer. The answer is Bitcoin, right? You set up you do your, you raise your donations using Bitcoin. People from around the world, regardless of wherever it is, who believe in your cause will donate to you. And that is the first power of Bitcoin, right? Now, inflation is depleting your resources, right? It's depleting your resources. If you had some of your balance sheet in Bitcoin, where you received some of these donations and kept some of it as your balance sheet in Bitcoin, right? Then no one can debase it for you, right? So you essentially be beating inflation over a long enough time frame, right? So you might, you, so the work that you need to do, going to do fundraising on GoFundMe, you don't need to travel. You can sit back home here, back here and get, and get this done, right? And people will support mm. you, you know? And, you know, the good thing is the director had already done some shit coin stuff and he was pissed off. I was like, okay, Bitcoin makes more sense. So, I mean, there's, there, there's something about people who have dabbled in shit coins before and got messed up in the sense that Bitcoin's message is totally different. Right. So 
said, okay, are you good with this? So here's what happened, right? When I started speaking to him, he said, you know what, wait, wait. So I was speaking to their board of elders and I said, I should wait. They need to bring their families, right? <laughs> so that we have a more in-depth session on Bitcoin, right? So mm. we scheduled another day Smart. and they went and brought their families and brought everyone in. And then we had a Bitcoin session from the ground up with everyone asking questions and whatnot, right? And then you just say, okay, can we go forward with this fundraising and look at, you know, these other educational efforts, you know, at a point in time, I had other pastors calling me, hey, you know, this Bitcoin thing, you know, when can you come talk to us about this, this Bitcoin thing? So I think, um, I think it's incredibly brave, uh, because as a religious institution, they, a lot of people are putting their hope in them to take care of them. Right. They're putting their hope in them as sort of like one last path to freedom that they have in the country, right? Where there's sort of religious tolerance, where the government doesn't really need to go touch religious bodies, right? Because religion mm -hmm. is personal to us. And I said, if religion is personal to us, that's how our money should also be personal to us, right? So money is like a religion as well. And then we agreed to say, okay, like, how do we do this? How do we pick it up? How do we sort of, you know, learn self-custody and whatnot, and then take this educational effort across all of the churches? Right, and um, this is one of the biggest churches in northern Nigeria, over 6,000 um, congregations all over the country, um, you know, more than 6 million members, you know, between 6 to 10 million members, you know, both home and abroad as well. So I'm really excited to, you know, sort of see it go live and, you know, see that the power of Bitcoin is demonstrated to them in real life. Not just what I'm saying, not just what I've been saying, but this is it in real life. This is, this is it happening. This is the Bitcoin. You got it. You changed it. And you paid for the things that you want to do. I think the other interesting thing is they have missionaries around different countries as well. And I say, look, you could just use Bitcoin to send money to them, right? You don't need to have all these long wait times to send money to a missionary who's probably somewhere, you know, and needs some cash to do something quickly and has to wait one week before they get the money there. Bitcoin is one of the easiest ways that you can cross borders and send these things to them. So I'm really excited to see the things that we can work um, together on and you know hopefully see that you know other religious bodies and other you know charities look at this to say that okay we need to move to stronger money in order to get our work done that's so awesome man <clears throat> such a such a perfect union of principles and purpose and many other things you know if you go down the rabbit hole but that's yeah. that's awesome to hear and you know it's it's interesting i mean one you're right you know people a lot of people especially in the charitable or church or other domains have like an aversion to money. And I think mm -hmm. there's a number of reasons for that. But one I think is maybe subconsciously because when you hand someone a fiat dollar bill or a Naira bill or a Euro, you're actually giving them a mechanism to be stolen from, mm -hmm. right? Because if you give mm -hmm. them, you know, a $50 bill and then somewhere, somewhere, somewhere far away, someone presses a button and debases that by 20%, then you've just give like you've given them something that is guaranteeing they're going to be stolen from and and so it's like of course you should feel somewhat guilty about that but if you can give them something that you know they can't be stolen from a perfect pristine asset that is theirs and nobody else's and they have the total freedom to do with as they will well then that that's something that you can be you know proud of giving them and and, and proud to uh, be a part of and not be sheepish about. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, talk when you mentioned shit coins and, and, uh, and the church, 
I mean, you're probably <laughs> familiar with this story, but you know, it, it makes me think of Jesus going in the temple and turning and flipping up the tables of the money changers, right? Because that's what shit coiners yeah. are, right? They're trying to, yeah. they're trying to trick you and, 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 and steal your money by these like sleight of hand changes. And you know, yep. what's even more interesting about that story. That's in Matthew 21. <laughs> Did you know that? It's one million. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, that's right? a good it's one. That's cool, that, right? That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's, that's really no, good. No coincidences. That's, that's no, no. As my friend no Gigi often says. <laughs> Gigi. Well, yeah. man, uh, this has been awesome. I'm sure we could do this for a lot longer, but I'm, I'm also sure that you have a lot of uh, other work that you need to get to. So before we shut this down, if it, was there anything else that you wanted to cover or get off your chest or direct people anywhere, anything like that? I mean, um, so first and foremost, just to say that, you know, I think um, uh, our time uh, in Oslo was a really great time, you know, meeting other, you know, Bitcoiners and human rights activists from around the world. It just sort of gave more meaning to the work that we're doing, right? And just sort of like a, an extra foil to uh, to the job, you know, shout out to Alex Gladstein, you know, the Human Rights Foundation and City, City for, for, the, for the dope retreats. Like, oh, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one, even though we didn't see any, any, any darkness for, for a couple of days. I think it was, <laughs> it was really a that good was awesome. one. Yeah, it was a good one. Um, I mean, I'll just say, you know, People should, you know, just um, check out Bitnub, you know, support us, you know, we're just, we're just, you know, we're, we're like, we're like, we're like the lone voice in the wilderness over here, uh, you know, really just sticking to these principles, even though we could do a lot, make a lot of money with shit coins and whatnot, you know, so, so definitely we need that moral support from around the world and, you know, there's the the donations as well. I'm sure that once it's up and this interview is out, if you're listening, like, just go to the Bidnob handle, it's Bidnob underscore official. I'm sure you see that's our pinned tweets by then. And, you know, every Satoshi counts. Like, every Satoshi is sending a message to them to say, look, you're not alone. Welcome to the community and the world is with you. Thank you. Awesome. Well, we'll include all the links and, and handles and stuff like that in the show notes so people can... Uh, go there and, and follow you and learn more about all the awesome work you're doing. And man, Thank you, I love John. this. It's been an honor yeah. to get to know you. I'm super pumped uh, about what you're doing in Nigeria. And I, I can't wait to continue watching because uh, I'm sure it's going to be exciting. And I know you're going to, well, I love the dedication and the commitment to <laughs> truth and freedom. And I think it's going to turn out, uh, you know, I think it's going to turn out well. So I, I wish you yeah. the best and we'll definitely do an update and another chat uh, at some point in the future. Thank you, my man. Thank you for having me. It's, it's, it's a wonderful discussion. I mean, we could go on for hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll do another yeah. one for sure. Yeah. All right, brother. Take, take care. Yeah. Thank you. I hope you found this discussion as interesting and enjoyable as I did. I consider myself extremely lucky to be in a position to meet and chat with people like Bernard, who are so committed to doing such good and important work in the world. If you'd like to hear more from Bernard, follow him on Twitter at Bernard underscore para, B-E-R-N-A-R-D underscore P-A-R-A-H, and visit bitnob.com to learn more about the awesome work he and the team have been doing. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop, and we'll see you next time.